Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles... Okay, we have to start that again. <laughs> On the last show! Ugh. Whoa. It's, it's, my, my tongue is saying, no, Matt, don't go. And it's tying itself in knots. I think I screw up probably about two and a half times to three times as much as you screw up in just articulating things. So this is a special treat for me right off the top of the podcast. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters, and I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Monday, January fourth, Liam, the time has come. I can't. I don't want to hear it. I know you're pretty used to being broken up with just from <laughs> what you've told me about your personal life, right? Uh huh. But again, it is not you. I mean, it kind of is you, but it's mostly me. It is my last podcast on Gimme Shelter. Boo. I know. Yeah. I know. It's a bummer. It's an emotional moment. It is. <laughs> That's it? I've said so many nice things about you. I have to ration them out during this show, other social mm. media and other things. Perhaps a toast in person when we can do that again. That would sure be nice. So today we have a very special podcast. It's kind of a potpourri, a other synonyms for potpourri. Well, it's basically what has Matt learned over the last four years of covering California housing? Which is a difficult question because the internet has ruined my capacity to actually internalize new knowledge. Mm -hmm. As I always do, I'll be leaning on you quite heavily. We have been covering California housing on this podcast since 2017. More than four years. Yeah, and because of the pandemic, it feels like we've been covering this since 1817. Right. <laughs> And we have some takes. We have some takes. Yep. Things we've learned, things we've always wondered about, declarative statements of ill-informed opinions that you probably shouldn't trust us on. I'm hoping this will be kind of fun, a little bit wistful, a typical Liam Dillon date. Well, Matt's takes, as per usual, will be slightly hotter than mine because he gets to leave all this behind while I get to stick around. I get to burn so many bridges. I am mm -hmm. so excited. Mm -hmm. So excited. So just to remind those of you that may not have been listening to the last couple episodes of the podcast, which I forgive you for, but Liam will eternally hold a grudge, I am leaving my position at Cal Matters to take a job at Marketplace, the public radio program. So if you miss Matt's voice, never fret, you can still hear it. You know what? Let me say this, too. I sure sound a lot better when I'm doing like public radio features than I sound on this podcast. I think that's partly because like I'm sitting talking into this mic and then partly as I think you just, you elicit some type of inherent insecurity that I think is evident in my voice when I talk. And it's not, it's not the like, oh, I'm going on NPR to broadcast to potentially an audience of millions. I have to cross my T's, <laughs> dot my I's versus a very dedicated few thousand that we have for every episode and none of that. It's none of like feeling like you have to rise to the moment put on your P's and Q's in, on no. the radio? No? No, okay. the fear is always that I'll confuse like one piece of Reno reform legislation for another. Oh, and I'll and then, mercilessly make fun of you about that. Or get yeah. slaughtered on Twitter. Right, right, right. You know, a little epilogue here actually. So we'll see if this really materializes, but it looks like part of my 
kind of coverage area at Marketplace will be the future of cities, which okay. I'm kind of excited about. Yeah, that's cool. I think I'll be touching a lot on some of the urbanist issues near and dear to your hearts for many of you that follow this podcast, including housing affordability issues. Mm-hmm. So I, I won't be completely removed from the space. Okay, so just a little preview of what we're going to go through on this episode. Um, just me and Matt, none of that guest stuff. We're just going to give it to you direct today. Well, I guess we do have the perfect guest for my last show, Liam. Which is you. Yeah, okay. it's me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's me this time. Yeah. yeah. So briefly, we'll be uh, doing some navel-gazing about what kind of your average California reader should know about political reporting in the Capitol. We'll be doing some Nostradamus predictions for the remainder of this year. Happy 2021, by the way. Uh, Happy to you as well. And then we'll kind of sum this up with some grandiose reflections on things we've learned over the past three years. How does that sound to you? Sounds great. But first, it would not be an episode of Gimme Shelter unless we had the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. Liam, it is. The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And this avocado of the fortnight, my last avocado of the fortnight, takes us to a highway underpass in downtown Sacramento. Liam, take it away. So we've talked a lot over the past year since the pandemic started about potential wave of evictions or an eviction cliff that tenants might be facing due to all of the economic problems the pandemic has caused. And it turns out the eviction cliff has come to the freeway underpass in downtown Sacramento for BATS. B-A-T-S. B-A-T-S. Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation, is evicting BATS who are now living under the the underside of the freeway in downtown Sacramento. Caltrans is planning to widen Highway 50, and the bats got to go. You know what? Is there anybody else out there that's like, considering what bats did to 2020, maybe we should just leave them alone? (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Do we need to disturb bats right now to expand a highway? I mean, there's lots of people who wouldn't want to expand a highway, period, right? Right, right, right. But particularly, yeah. I think bats have the upper hand right now in the bats versus humanity dynamic. Yeah, and these bats are, I guess, living in these what are known as, quote, weep holes underneath the freeway. Hmm. And the bats go in them, hide away in the structure. They roost, which is, you know, cool. It sounds like fun. But now Caltrans workers are going to screwing in plastic tubes into these weep holes which causes the bats not to be able to use them anymore. And as a result, adios, bats. How does the state's current eviction moratorium protect these bats, if at all? It it doesn't. It doesn't. Bats are out of luck. This is one of those loopholes I kept bringing up to the administration and just not getting any traction on with my emails to their press office. We should have asked uh, Jason Elliott about it last week. Anything else about this, our last avocado? No. No. I think it's fitting, though, you know? On the record... Can we not disturb these bats? (laughs) It's fine, especially if it's like real close to me. I really don't want any more bat-related drama. Yeah. Especially this close to where I currently live. So Mm -hmm. people need to be more terrified of bats. That's the lesson of 2020. (laughs) Okay, well, that dispenses with our very last avocado of the fortnight. Are you going to keep the avocado in future iterations? So we should just quickly explain. So the plan, I think, is there'll be as a brief hiatus of this podcast. We do expect our replacement to be hired, although who can replace Matt Levin? But someone will attempt. 
And that person we expect to be able to co-host this podcast with me in the coming months. And yes, we're keeping the avocado, no question. Yes. Yeah. And actually, a quick shout out to the person that coined the avocado of the Fortnite, Dave Guarino, a fan of the podcast and actually a, an old friend of mine who I believe was the person who coined the term avocado of the Fortnite. But if there are other features or different kind of creative directions with the podcast that you think would be better, especially that I am no longer attached to it, send them to... Liam. <laughs> Tweet at Liam. Let's transition to a few things I think people should know about reporting about California's capital. You particularly are averse to navel gazing. Yes. You do not like to talk about process. You do not like to talk about us, aside from maybe a playful exchange of banter. Right, right. right. But anything that somewhat valorizes or glorifies us, you are inherently allergic to think you're being a bit facetious. Actually, letting people in to understand the process is good. But I think because this stuff is demystifying this, I think helps people understand how it is that we get what we get and what we don't get and all those sorts of things, right? You know, I also think, you know, at the end of the day, you want to deliver what people need to know. And so I like describing the process only such that it gives a window into that rather than anything else. Well, that's exactly what we're going to try to do. All right. So what's the first thing that you think people should know that they probably don't about what it's like covering politics in Sacramento. That Sacramento politics, and particularly the politics of the legislature, in determining what gets a bill through into law and what doesn't, I think is much more of a black box than reporters like to admit. I think we are okay at reporting. These are the particular politics around a specific bill, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. These are the interest groups that are for it. These are the interest groups that are against it. These are the lawmakers that have these incentives to either vote against it, vote for it. This is what we think their constituents will react to it, right? Right. I think where I missed the boat, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, is there is a lot of horse trading that straddles multiple issues. That's right. And there's a lot of personal political maneuvering that straddles multiple issues or isn't even issue related, but is more in terms of somebody wants a different committee seat, somebody is holding a grudge, personal petty differences, or maybe what the reporter would condescendingly view as petty, but are very important to lawmakers. (laughs) Those things matter. They really do. And I can't tell, you know, my readers or the listeners on the podcast how much those things, which are in that black box I'm referring to, influence the outcome of legislation. Now, I will say for like real high profile marquee legislation where big, big political power brokers are involved, I feel mostly confident that I'm tracking the politics correctly there. Yeah. But even then, there are some things that I don't know that could very much influence. And the reason I'm saying this is I think it's a disservice. The public should know all of the things that influence whether a bill lives or dies. And I think oftentimes our reporting gives the veneer of what we know as comprehensive, but it's not comprehensive. So react. Uh, Let me reflect on that a little bit. I mean, I think like uh, this runs parallel with something that I, I learned pretty quickly and was surprising and outside coming in to the Capitol is that like lawmakers don't really know a lot about many issues. And I think that's actually 
the most we can expect the best lawmakers are gonna be experts in maybe two or three things. Like that's really all you can be an expert in. But there are dozens of multifaceted, seriously complicated things that lawmakers have to vote on. Housing, healthcare, water, schools. I mean, these are all really difficult and hard to know and understand systems. And so if you don't know something about schools or don't know something about healthcare, or don't know something about immigration, then you just have to kind of turn to the people that kind of brought you to the dance to rely on what your position is going to be. Yes. And again, I think that's the best of the lawmakers. The worst of them don't know anything about anything, right? And some of those exist. But in that case, then yeah, like it seems obvious that some like politicking or interpersonal relationships are going to matter. And what the legislative leadership says is going to matter, right? And what this one person got in your ear at the last district event you had said. Yeah. And that all that matters is just really hard, I think, to what you were saying, to be able to understand that in that context. And it's also really hard to be able to say to a lawmaker, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. I've certainly done interviews with lawmakers where I've certainly felt that way. That's a really hard thing to prove. And then to be able to prove it so much that you're able to say it as a fact and a story that you're writing. And yeah. so like, that's really hard to do. And again, I don't wanna have this come off like I'm being unduly critical of lawmakers. I think part of the reason, frankly, why I decided to focus on writing about housing and maybe a couple other things when I first started the Capitol was that I knew I would fail. I would not do a good job if I had to try to understand every single system to report on. I wouldn't be able to write informative stories. And so I yeah. think like we should expect no better or no worse than having lawmakers who actually do understand on a handful of things that are important in the state, what it is that they're voting on, really. I think we are talking about two slightly different things. I do think that the lack of knowledge, which is somewhat understandable, but I think you are more forgiving than me. If lawmakers don't know something, they should just say that. Right. Just admit it. Yeah. Just say, you know what? I need to look into this more. You know, I think cynical reporters will be like, oh, you know, this person just doesn't want to give an answer on this. But lawmakers should be more inclined to do that than to hew to a position that they don't understand. Yeah. What I'm saying is in terms of bills actually becoming law, I think there's more like revanchist, petty maneuvering that influences the content of the bills and what happens to them than I put in my stories, either because I am not told on the record that this is what's happening. Yeah. So there's lots of information I am told yeah. on background, which means I can't really use it unless I come up with some special attribution method, right? Or I'm told off the record that's influencing things that I think is incredibly relevant, that the public should know, but they don't. And it's just kind of the nature of this beast. Anyway, the only other thing I really wanted to vent about yeah. is the trade-off between favorable coverage and access to information. Why don't you kind of define that trade-off as you see it, how prevalent you think it is in the Capitol and what you try to do to ward against it? I mean, and this is a somewhat of a debate that happens a lot in like journalism circles. And I think it's what probably the general public thinks to a large extent kind of happens. I mean, if you write positive things that are quote unquote positive about a topic or a individual lawmaker, then that individual lawmaker or people involved in that topic will be nicer to you and then give you more information. And that's yep. considered like access versus like yep. your very real responsibility 
to your readers who were your audience, and I'm kind of putting my thumb on the scale for what I believe here, which is to provide coverage without fear or favor, uh, to tell people what they need to know about a particular situation or a particular individual or lawmaker, a powerful person, and who cares whether they, they're happy with it or not. And in fact, it doesn't matter to what your audience needs to know about what's going on with that topic. But I think what you're kind of getting at is that obviously sometimes when you write something about someone that they don't like, then they may not talk to you in the future. And that has <laughs> certainly has happened to me. It happened to me at the Capitol all through my career in various things. And I, it happened I, to me I, too. I know it's happened to you too. And so that does become somewhat of a challenge in terms of making sure that you're delivering to your readers going forward the information of what's kind of really happening at all stages if certain folks who have that information won't talk to you. That's right. How do you counteract that? Because I haven't really figured out a way. So if a certain legislator or a certain lobbyist or someone in the administration yeah. who's important and important to a story I'm working on right. won't talk to me, I do my best to try to figure out their perspective from what I know and try to do it as fairly as I can but fundamentally, I have a gnawing feeling that I am missing something elemental to the story. And I could go on Twitter and shame them right, you know, right, for right, not right. talking to me. Yeah. But I don't think that helps because Twitter is a nightmare. <laughs> and I don't think that endears me to the person who won't talk to me. And then you put the decline to common in there and that's kind of all it is. Right. So how do you overcome that? Because I think it influences how good the reporting is. You just have to work harder. I mean, you just, it's a pain in, in the pain, but you just have to work harder. Yeah. That's really the only answer. There's no perfect answer to this, right? That's the only answer. Also, I think if folks aren't talking to you for petty reasons, now, granted, if I make a mistake, I want someone to tell me and I want to try to fix it, right? And that's happened. And I do my best to be humble about that and to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. But if I haven't made a mistake and you're just mad because you don't like what I wrote or it's unfavorable to you because you did something that was unfavorable, then sorry, like, this is life. You're in power. Eat it. And then in the future, if you don't get your perspective in this story about a thing because you're still mad about something that I wrote a while ago, then that's to their detriment. And again, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to make sure that whatever's reality is best reflected. But people, if they want to hold grudges, do lose if they don't want to talk to us. See, that's the thing is I actually think in certain circumstances they do and then in certain circumstances they don't. I think by blocking out certain reporters, we can talk about kind of darker flip side of this is if they go to a different reporter, they can get more favorable coverage. And right. there, there are times where I read things where I'm thinking in the back of my head, this seems to be spun in a way that is too favorable to a particular person. Right. And I wonder whether that is simply a result of maybe a reporter not knowing the details and nuances of an issue or, you know, whether because this came from somebody, yeah. whether it's just kind of framed in that more favorable way. That's part of the reason I bring this up. I think readers should be aware that that is a real trade-off and something you do see in the reporting. That being said, I, the vast majority of the reporters that work in the Capitol have real integrity. Yeah, They really do. They have strong values and put up with all types of 
<laughs> of garbage from a lot of people right. and take pride in the uh, objectivity of their reporting and not letting their personal biases or access to information influence the coverage. But it does happen. I don't want to go too deep into this, but I don't like the objectivity bias because I think we're all biased. We bring our own biases to the thing. We everything that of we course. do when we write and we have to. But anyway, I don't want to. This is a long conversation that perhaps can be had over uh, over drinks at some point. Um, don't trust anything you read. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on now to predictions for 2021. And we are going to resuscitate a worn gimmick that we have used multiple times to great success on the podcast. Okay. We will make a statement. We will say at the same time, counting down, whether we agree, mostly agree, disagree, or mostly disagree with that statement. And then we will exchange our viewpoints. Okay. The first prediction for 2021 in housing. California will extend its eviction moratorium and cancel a portion of renters' debt. Agree, mostly agree, disagree, mostly disagree. All right, you ready? I'm ready. In three, two, one. Mostly agree. agree. Yeah. Why don't you go first? So eviction moratorium or some eviction protections that are eligible or currently law in the state through the end of this month, the end of January, they're set to expire then. And so there are conversations that have been going on for some time about what extended those eviction protections might look like. And those protections, again, briefly are that if you're paying a portion of your rent, a quarter of your rent now, you cannot be evicted for non-payment during the coronavirus pandemic. And so there have been conversations going on for some time, and they have to, of course, wrap up by the end of this month. And I think that will happen. I think a big moving point, and this gets to the second aspect of this, has been what the federal government may do in this space. And now that it looks like California is getting $2 billion in rent relief funds from the federal government, that will, I think, help speed the way or clear a path for a further extension of these eviction protections for a period of time. And then I don't think the state will do what you said cancel a portion of renters' debt, but I do think that this money will be put to use to alleviate some of the rent debt that uh, has accumulated over the past nine months. I see. The mostly there was referring to that cancel exactly. renters' debt. Exactly. Okay, yes. okay. well, that, then I'm with you. I think the real question here is how much? How much of renters' debts do get somehow ameliorated? Yeah. That $2 billion is a meaningful sum of money, Absolutely. right? The, Absolutely. The yeah. estimate yeah. from the Philadelphia Fed... Your pride and joy. That's right. This was a little while back was that California renters would be about, I think it was $1.7 billion That's right. in renter debt. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody knows what the real number is. Just even really, really smart people do not know what the real number is. But at least $2 billion is in the ballpark where it can make a meaningful dent in the problem. And also, who knows how long that's, we're going to go forward where we're yes. not have the economy that we need to be able to have people to rent debts that they have. And then who's who's eligible? Undocumented workers were not eligible for unemployment. Will they be eligible for this? I mean, you know, the structure of this and the rollout of this also is going to play a role in whether or not it's going to be able to stem some of the eviction concerns that exist. That's exactly right. I would be absolutely shocked if something doesn't pass by the end of the month. Yep. They are still going to need two-thirds votes in each chamber, but there seems to be a an emerging consensus. I mean, even the landlord lobby has said, yeah, you know, we're probably going to need to extend the moratorium right. in some way. And the $2 billion helps with those negotiations immensely, yeah. right? That's what wasn't there in last summer. God, when was it? The August? Summer, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Prediction number two. The legislature will finally pass a meaningful housing production package. Agree, mostly agree, disagree, or partially disagree. So we'll go uh, three, two, one. 
partially disagree. Mostly agree. Okay. So a quick DeLorean hop back to 2020, which I know no one wants to go back, but I'm going to take <laughs> you there anyway. There was a housing package that nearly did become law. This was a package that was spearheaded by Senate leader Tony Atkins, Democrat from San Diego. The kind of crown jewel of the package, I would say, was a bill that would have four single-family-only neighborhoods to allow duplexes and in some cases lot splits to create more housing across the state. There were some bills that would basically allow easier environmental reviews for new housing that would try to expedite the conversion of commercial land, uh-huh. all these big box retailers that aren't doing so well right now, into new housing. So that package existed and got out of the Senate. And basically because of political infighting and maybe some incompetence, did not get out of the assembly in time to become law. So it failed. Um, and I, yes, it failed. That package is back, and it's pretty much the same exact thing with a couple small tweaks and a affordable housing bond. So money that the government would borrow to fund low-income housing that they don't have a price tag yep. for. So that's the only kind of new development. Atkins has released it. Question now is, one, really, is it meaningful? And two, will it pass? So which one do you want to take? You know, I'll take both of them. Will it pass? Yeah, I think it's going to yeah. pass this year. I don't, and Me I, too. Yeah, so I, I agree. And Because it basically did last year. They just screwed up and couldn't end up getting it through, right? Now, the meaningful thing, I mean, like, look, when it comes to the legislature, it's a real thing to end single-family zoning in the state. That's a real thing. And so, like, yeah, there's some meaningfulness, I guess, attached to it. But it was not along the lines. None of these are along the same ideas that we had for kind of three years running that were embodied in bills from Senator Scott Wiener of San Francisco to kind of more fully undo kind of local zoning controls to allow for more dense housing than I think what these mm-hmm. package of bills will do. So that's number one. And so now they're a year behind that. You know, so they're one year behind where they were supposed to be or where folks thought they were going to be because of last year's screw up. And then again, like going back to Governor Gavin Newsom, let us not forget, as we try not to on every single podcast that he had during his campaign in 2018, had put forward an extremely aggressive housing production goal. And none of these ideas legislature has come up with and certainly doesn't seem like based on our conversation with his top housing advisor, Jason Elliott, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that we're going to see anything kind of super big from him that would allow for the state to meet those production goals. And so just to caveat that slightly, I actually would expect there to be some type of production policy push in the budget that is actually slated to come out on Friday Mm -hmm. after I leave Cal Matters. Yes. I think to your point, I would be absolutely shocked if it was to the magnitude of okay, we're going to do this one thing and we're going to create 3.5 million homes or even something near that. But I think there is going to be something on the production end coming out on Friday. But continue. No, and that's kind of my point is that it depends on what you define as meaningful. It looks like I would fully expect the legislature to pass something this year in this space, given how close they came last year. Certainly, it looks like governor may have something to add to that as well. But again, it's a year behind kind of what everyone promised and whether you want to give a coronavirus mulligan is up to you. And no matter what it is, it doesn't seem like it's going to be at the scale that perhaps was envisioned back 2018 or so. Just to be clear here, Opening up California to the amount of production that Newsom outlined of the campaign trail, it's not just land use reform, right. zoning reform right. that you can get there right. with. Right. Although that a lot of people would argue it's an essential piece to do that. But there is nothing in the Atkins housing package in terms of reforming the California Environmental Quality Act, which 
a lot of developers will argue is a bigger hurdle sure. to new housing development than, than zoning reform. There are some sequa tweaks in there, but right. it's not anything to the scale of going to unleash a huge boon of home building. Or changing yeah. tax structure to incentivize cities to sure. allow, I mean, all these sorts of very yeah. big ideas that are just don't appear to be part of this. Take your points. Yeah. I, I think, as always, they are well-articulated and- Correct is the word a, you're looking a, for, a, correct? Acerbically okay. passive-aggressive towards the Newsom administration. <laughs> what I will say yeah. is on the yes, this is meaningful yeah. is- yeah, I mean, if you look at all the publicity that Oregon and Minneapolis got, right, right, right. if this duplex bill passes, yeah. this is a meaningful thing. Is it going to solve the crisis? Mm. Absolutely not. Right. Are the rest of the bills going to? Absolutely not. Yeah. Will they help on the margins? Yes. I mm. think it is to the point where I can say, yes, this is meaningful. Similar to what I think, you know, I think the ADU legislation right. was meaningful. The accessory dwelling unit legislation from 2017, 2018, do I have that right? 16 and 19. I mean, it, 16 and 19. Anyway, that has unleashed a significant demand for new units. That helps. Right. Or I guess demand to build new units right. in people's backyards. That helps. So it's a matter of degree and uh, how passive aggressive you want to be to the Newsom administration mm. and lawmakers. Mm. Okay, let's move on to the next prediction. I'll take this one. Yeah. And I like this one because I think this is the key question for 2021. Demand for dense, pricey urban environments has been permanently blunted by the pandemic and the rise of telework. Three, two, one. Mostly Disagree. agree. Agree. Okay, so we have a disagreement here. We again. do. Why don't you make your case first? Okay, I like restaurants. I like bars. I like being able to go to these things, and I like them. These things being near me. Immediately venturing to the solipsistic. And so, a lot of people share my view, and I think that they're going to want to be near these places, be around people who like these places, wherever their job is. Now, do I think there's going to be more telework? Do I think that some folks are going to choose to live further away from their jobs because of that? Absolutely. Do I think this glut of millennials that exist are going to continue having kids and wanting bigger houses uh, than they may be able to afford in middle of cities? Absolutely. And so I do think we may see some shifts as a result of that. And I think that's all well and good. But the idea that no one's going to want to live in New York or San Francisco or LA anymore because of telework, I think is absurd. That's a straw man argument. This is because you spend too much time on Twitter. No. Nobody is saying that no one's going to want to live in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego anymore. They're not going to fall off into the ocean and have like <laughs> four people who are just fishing in Fisherman's Wharf or whatever, and that's San Francisco. No one is saying that. The real question, and perhaps I should have reframed this so you couldn't evade it in the way you have, is whether we're going to look more like January 2020, where we were then, or will the market, the rental market particularly, yeah. be cooler in those places? And significantly so. No, I don't think so. So I don't think it's going to be cheap. I think yeah. it's still going to be expensive to live in these places. Let me make my case for why demand is going to be partially blunted in a permanent ship. One, near-term, mortgage rates. Yep. There is not a world in which I see mortgage rates significantly rising over the next year. That is the number one predictor of demand for homes, Okay. right? All right. You can pay now because of mortgage rates, even those prices are insanely high, you're getting a decent monthly deal and people want to take advantage of those, yeah. right? That's not going away at least through, you know, 20, 
21, if you believe what the Fed chairman's saying, sure. right? But mortgage rates have been pretty okay. low for a while. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, but they're not what they are now. I mean, this it's record lows. Yes, yes. Number two, as you referenced, this is not a completely radical new thing in terms of millennials who are now in their 30s. Tell, um, tell me about it. Leaving pricey urban cores, right? And for home ownership. Mm -hmm. This is something that was developing over the last five years anyway, where you did see a steady trickle yeah. out of those urban cores. Now, those millennials were often being replaced by higher income people who were coming in from either other states. They were also replaced by foreign immigration, which could bounce back under a Biden administration. This is accelerating a trend. Okay, If you can work from home three days a week, and again, I'm not saying people are going to be completely untethered from the office. Sure. But if you can work from home three days a week and you are already thinking about buying a home, where are you going to buy that home? You may love the amenities of your posh place in Santa Monica, Lee, <laughs> but you're still not going to be able to afford a single family home there. I will not. You could perhaps find it in the suburbs or in a midsize city like Sacramento, if you were working for a firm in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I think this undoubtedly will accelerate the trend. You're already seeing data suggesting this. Yes, it is the death of cities is completely overstated, but I think it is denial if you're thinking demand to live in these places will be the same once the office says, yeah, you can work from home three days a week, four days a week. Now, it sounds like we're arguing over gradation of this. So, but I yes. think that's that's essential. Sure, if I'm going to concede that the demand's down, I don't know, 2% or 5% and you want to say it's down 10%, I mean, obviously there's a meaningful difference. I guess I'm emphasizing that I think the city's draws in terms of the things you can do there are going to be a big driver of people's preferences once you're allowed to do those things again, perhaps more so than the ability to chill in your house three days a week, work there, and then have to drive in just two days as opposed to five. I guess maybe the way of describing our difference is what I'm saying is I think the weight of the amenities from living in a city will be more of a draw for people than, I guess, the benefits from having bigger house uh, further away. So I think a larger portion of the population than you think will not share that sentiment. And I think the desire for more space, which, you know, I know is anathema to a lot of our listeners. <laughs> I think that will be compounded by work from home. Right. Got to have that office. And you can, you can see evidence of that in condo sales versus single family home right, sales right, right. Yeah. right now, at least according to what the realtors told me. So anyway, okay. Well, I'm glad we hashed that out. And I, I think I'm kind of right on this. I do. <laughs> So much of this debate that we had pre-pandemic was you got to put the housing where the jobs are. You got to put the housing where the jobs are for environmental reasons and for quality of life reasons, right? Right. Overall, I think telecommuting is a intuitive way to make the jobs housing imbalance less of an imbalance. I think you really have to worry about what happens with low-income workers sure, who, who have to show up in work. person. Right, yeah. Exactly. And what happens to those jobs. Right. And those rental markets aren't really softening in the same way as the higher income rental markets are. But overall, if you can reduce the amount of time it takes to commute into your job for a lot of people while promoting home ownership, 
think it's a net gain. Although, you know. It also could be that I, I, I like people and you don't, and so perhaps our perceptions are colored by, the, by that uh, point of view. All right, let's move on to our last prediction for 2021. Our final one for this category for this year, cities around the state have been getting gigantic new housing production numbers as a part of the state's housing goal-setting process that occurs every eight years, and we're in the goal-setting stage right now to the point soon where cities will have to zone for these new units. And so our question is, will cities be able to get out of these New requirements, agree, mostly agree, disagree, or partially disagree. So three, two, one. Uh, TBD. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. This is a really important question because barring whatever comes out of the Newsom administration on Friday, the backbone of the Newsom administration's plan to build more housing in California really is, one, the bigger numbers that are coming down on cities, and two, greater enforcement and incentives to force the cities to permit housing in those numbers, right? Making sure the law actually works, which, as you've written, you know, for 50 years, it really hasn't. So this this is a very, very, very important question to Jason Elliott, among others. Well, I think what we may see new this year around the state is... And this will certainly, I believe, come up in the legislature as well, is you're going to see cities basically saying we can't possibly zone for another 3,000 or uh, 500 or whatever their number is, homes that are in our city, so we have to get a way out. And I think there will be a bunch of bills from lawmakers and perhaps, you know, lawsuits, certainly lawsuits, and perhaps city councils saying no, saying we're not going to do it and we want an exemption just for us. And you've actually seen this throughout history with this process. In fact, the to me, the, one of the most grossest ones was there was a bill that was run by the lawmaker representing the city of Folsom in Northern California, famous for its prison, which uh, attempted to have its prison beds count as its low-income housing at one point in a previous cycle. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know this one. Yeah. Awful. Just awful. And so you're going to see bills, perhaps not as, as gross as that, but bills like that that uh, will be introduced to try to get one city or another out of this process. Again, lawsuits will happen. Certain cities will say no. In fact, speaking of uh, my new home of Santa Monica, their new city council has been pretty strident against the new housing goals that are coming. And so, again, you're going to see these issues, I think, pop up really strongly in this coming year now that these numbers are beginning to become more real. Do you think the pandemic throws a wrinkle in this in two ways? I think you've done more reporting on this particularly than I have, so I just want to get your thoughts. Yeah. One, all those numbers were developed before the recession, before the rise of telework, which, you know, if it's going to be as prevalent as some people, including myself, believe it is, could shift household growth rates to different parts of the state, right? Make them a little different than what the state originally thought they were doing when they came up with these numbers a couple years back, right? Do you think that's going to be part of the argument on oh, absolutely. local government? I think they'll yeah. make any argument, but I think that will be <laughs> that will certainly be part of the well, argument do, do, they're going do, to make. Yeah. Do yeah. you think that argument has credence at all? 
I think it's worth putting in context that the sort of the last eight year cycle of this, those numbers were, some would argue, artificially low because they came out of- I would argue that. Yeah, because they came out of the previous recession, the real financial problems that the state was having, the last financial crisis and mortgage crisis and foreclosure crisis of the mid aughts. And so that's just kind of how this process kind of works. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think we're certainly going to hear those arguments a bunch, but that they sway people, again, I don't, I'm not sure. Okay. I actually think aside from the eviction cliff, the arena battle will be like the second biggest story to watch this year. It's kind of a back burner, but I think it comes to the front burner this year. Yep. I agree. Okay. So now to our last segment, which will be in a fill in the blank format where we reflect on the things we've learned in the course of talking about housing this will make more sense when we actually do it. All right, you ready? <laughs> yes. All right, so we'll, we'll start with this statement, yeah. and then why don't you go first with you completing the sentence, and I'll do mine afterwards. So the single biggest thing California has done to tackle its housing crisis since we started the podcast in summer 2017 is, and I'm cheating because I'm going to say two things, the Casita bills, the ADU bills, and Project Home Key. Ah, interesting. So I'll, I'll explain both of these things very quickly. So as we referenced earlier on, the there were a number of bills that passed in both in 2016 and 2019 that made it easier for people to build these second units, and I like to call them casitas, or they're known as ADUs, on their properties. And there's been a huge increase in the, these uh, up and down the state since this legislation passed. And the legislation basically did things like told cities and utilities they couldn't charge large fees if people wanted to build them, et cetera, right? Uh, parking stuff, all that sort of stuff. And so we've seen a large number in, uh, increase in housing production in this area as a result of uh, the legislation being passed. The second is this Project Home Key, which is something that was done within the past six months, which was using federal funds. The news administration was able to buy underutilized motels and hotels and turn 6,000 of those hotel rooms into permanent supportive housing or, or housing for uh, homeless residents. And to me, I think what that uh, has done is shown that you actually you can do this quickly. Like 6,000 new units in six months, while hardly the extent of homeless housing or low-income housing the state needs, is a pretty big deal and done quickly. And I think it yeah. gave some keys, which is if you have the money and you have a deadline and you have a quick process and you get rid of some of the, the rules that make it hard to you know, build or, or support housing, you're able to do this in a, in a relatively fast time frame. And so I think that is not only should be kind of seen as a success for what it did, but also as kind of a roadmap for how you might do some of these things going forward. This will be by far Newsom's biggest achievement in housing. I don't see how that's really arguable right. to bring this much housing stock for people experiencing homelessness online this quickly. Yep. Just to your point, when people talk about the housing crisis, there are really three, right? There is the middle-class affordability crisis, which is why are these rents so high? I can't save any money and the price of a home is insane. I'll never own one, right? right, right, right. There is the second crisis, which is Low-income Californians who are really strained by rents are threatened by displacement and gentrification and on the verge of homelessness. Then the third and most pressing crisis is the homelessness crisis. Yep. So I, I think when we talk about the housing crisis, it's a broad general term. Yep. You should keep in mind there's really three discrete but related crises packed within it. I have nothing more to add. I think that you nailed the two. I would just give a shout out to Senate Bill 35, 
which was a bill in the 2017 housing package. Why are you laughing? No, it's just that I don't. We don't typically endorse bills, so I'm interested. Uh, just laughing. At I'm not endorsing it. it. Yeah, no. I'm just giving it a mention. Okay, is a piece of legislation that actually has led to more housing production. I think in terms of the enforcement mechanisms for. Rena process that we talked about earlier, that's really the one. Right, right, right. right? right, right. Yeah. It's flawed in many ways, depending on your perspective. But yeah, I think SB 35 is an achievement. So what, what did it do? Uh, so SB 35, basically, if local governments weren't meeting their housing production requirements, a developer could fast track their proposal if they included a certain amount of low-income housing. Right. And that passed in 2017. 2017. Well, part of what spurred the podcast, the 2017 housing package. That's right. Let's move through these quicker. Why don't you read this next one and I'll do, uh, I'll give my fill in the blank. Okay. Housing Twitter is not good. Not good, guys. Guys, listen to me. It's not just housing Twitter, it's Twitter. <laughs> it, it is driving people insane. Yeah. It's not a good thing. It is discourse poison and psychologically harmful. There are certain elements of it that I like, that I think everyone likes, mm. but overall, it does way more harm than good, destroys relationships, <laughs> it elides nuance, it is not good. So anyone listening out there, you know, one, if you're on housing Twitter and this is striking a chord, just disregard my comments about telecommuting earlier because I think I'm now completely off your radar <laughs> to begin with, but two... You know you want to. It'll be better for you. Get off. Hmm. Get off. It's not worth it. You can still call lawmakers if you want to. You can write emails, which Liam and I read, which reporters read, and we will react to you. And we will react in a much more sophisticated way and meaningful way than a tweet. It's not good for anybody. I don't much to add to your... Well, hold up. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. I want you to complete the sentence. Oh, okay. All right. Housing Twitter is... Oh, redundant. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add, and you're quite a soapbox you're on about Twitter, and so I generally don't share your view about Twitter's value. I think that there is value, uh, but there's the same arguments that have been happening on Housing Twitter since 2016. They're just different versions of it, and they come up maybe once a week, and then there's a big fight about a particular thing, and, but it's really the same thing. And so it is a bit, not a bit, it is a redundant uh, exercise. Let's move on. So a couple more here. I'll tee you up on this one. Okay. Governor Newsom's record on housing is... Not good. <laughs> so my, my, the same response that I gave to Twitter? Yes. <laughs> I've said this many times, so I'll just say it very quickly. I think we should judge politicians by in two levels. One, against what they promise, right? Because that's what they've told voters that they were going to do. And two, whether they do things that are meaningfully changing our particular problems in our society. And I think, in, unfortunately, on both accounts, despite the success that we mentioned earlier about Project Home Key, just he didn't do it. You know, hasn't done it so far. And it doesn't necessarily mean I would have had to hold him account to getting all the homes built that he said that was going to happen uh, on the campaign trail. There's 500,000 a year, right? Which is would be a huge order of magnitude increase. But I do think when you make promises like that, you have to propose plans that would achieve those promises. And we haven't seen them uh, from him. And based on our conversation a couple weeks ago with top housing advisor, I don't really expect to see them going forward either. All right, how about this? Because I, I agree with most of what you said. I'm generally kind of softer on what he said on the campaign trail 
because I think the latter criteria you outlined, what have you done that's meaningful is more important. Yeah, yeah. They took a number that was in a McKinsey report right. and they plugged it into their campaign materials and now it's going to hang like an albatross on them till the end of time. Right. Also, there hasn't really been a ton of leadership there too. And that's just as, just as significant, yeah. Mm-hmm. I do give credit on the homelessness side for prioritizing the issue for room key and for the amount of money that he's yep. spending. And on the tenant side of things... I think the anti-rent gouging law that was passed last year was a notable achievement. I think it's been very mixed in terms of his response to the pandemic on evictions. I'm going to say something kind here, though, about about him with respect to that. I read a lot of these national stories about eviction cliff and eviction worries and people losing their homes right now. Certainly it's happening here in California. I'm not I don't want to deny that or say that that's not true. But the extent to which it's happening here does not appear to be as no. significant as it is in a lot of other states right now. And that's, you know, I think in large part because of what has been done at some eviction protections here that do not exist elsewhere. Yeah, but he didn't do what was done initially. It was the judicial council. Sure, sure, sure. Init- but, yeah, but they got yeah. they got something through. Yes, later on. It's a different question if the original executive orders were still in place. What oh, happened, sure, right? sure, sure, sure. Let's go to the last one here. Yeah. Actually, the last two. Zoning reform on the scale of Senate Bill 50 will come to California within X time period. I don't know. Honestly, I honestly don't know. I think it's a very open question whether it will happen at all, which leads me to the next question here is SB 50 really ever stand of chance of getting through the legislature? I kind of want to decouple SB 50 from big housing production idea. I don't want to say that it has to be is or was or or could have been the be all and end all on this idea, right? I don't think that that's true, number one. And number two, and I think what those debates very clearly lacking were debate were the involvement and real push by kind of legislative leadership and the governor working at the same time to get a major housing production bill through. And that never happened. So lacking that then no, nothing like SB 50 or any other really major housing production bill would get through without that crucial element. And that never happened. And it's unclear to me whether that's actually going to happen going forward. So I think just to unpack this question a little more, I think there were strategic mistakes that the backers of SB 827 initially and then SB 50 made these big attempts to transform land use patterns across California that really were potentially transformative. Like that's not a endorsement misleading adjective. Yeah. Yeah. There were (laughs) ways in which the legislation was rolled out that I think backlash that could have been avoided. Ultimately, I don't think that's what sunk it. I think even if they got it through the Senate with the backing of Atkins, I don't see it getting through the assembly now that I've seen how the assembly deals with some of these housing production issues. And to your point, I don't know what would, this would be a big fight if Newsom really tries to push for it explicitly. You are still going to have suburban lawmakers that are like, to hell with this. Like what? But this goes back to what you were saying, sort of saying at the top of the podcast about people with different interests and how those interests play off each other. It's worth reminding folks, I think, in 2017, which was the last time that there was sort of a large number of, of housing bills that kind of got grouped together and passed as a package, right? That in a lot of ways, that was only done because 
the governor, Jerry Brown at the time, and lawmakers were trying to use leverage off each other for a variety of things. I mean, there were the environmental conversations about extending the cap-and-trade climate change program the state state had played a very big role in whether or not there was housing legislation that was going to pass that year. Because the governor really wanted the cap-and-trade stuff, and some lawmakers really wanted the housing stuff, and the governor was only going to support certain bits of housing legislation. It was attached to other bits, right, like the bond, right? Like there was the affordable housing bond that was passed in 2018. And so like all this stuff happens together. And that, again, goes to my point, what I was saying about this leadership, that even if suburban lawmakers in the assembly don't like the idea of upending single family zoning or something else, if you couple that with something that they have to vote for or do like, then maybe you get these sorts of bills passing. Let's do one more here. Corporate ownership of single family homes is dot, 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 why don't you, why don't you uh, pave the way? Yeah. <laughs> um, low-hanging fruit. And I want to be clear here. Yeah. I have yet to be convinced from the evidence that's out there that private equity firms and similar entities that do own a decent amount of single-family homes in California, yeah. that that is the root cause of our housing crisis. I've done some reporting on this. And I think it's fair to say that maybe in some local markets, they are holding on to homes that otherwise may come on the market more often, right? And that way they're kind of inflating prices. But in terms of the state overall and the many dimensions to the housing crisis that we discussed, Blackstone that is single-handedly doing this, right? Causing all of these issues. What I don't understand is why there isn't more appetite in the legislature to, or from the governor, to go after them. We had Steve Maviglio on the podcast, who was the spokesman for the anti-rent control campaign, a big donor to the no on statewide rent control campaign were these private equity firms that own these single family home rentals. And so I asked them, why should a corporation own a single family home? And you should listen to the tape. He just kind of blanks out on it and then goes, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Considering that the legislature has super majorities of Democrats, they're not enamored with private equity. Certainly corporations are often a easy villain to rail against when it Mm -hmm. comes to all manner of issues. I always wonder why they don't go after them more. Put a huge tax on, I'm not endorsing these. I'm just saying, I'm surprised these ideas haven't been floated. Yeah a significant new tax on corporate ownership of single-family homes, a significant new tax on acquiring new single-family homes. A lot of people are worried, although there's really limited evidence here that this is happening now, but we're going to see a repeat of what happened in 0809 when all these foreclosures happened and then these corporations scooped up all these single-family homes. It's one of the things I've always wondered. You know, there's been some bills that kind of have dealt with this at the edges, but like, even if they don't get through the legislature because there will be significant opposition, I don't even see these floated. Well, just a couple of quick points. First, there was a bill that passed last year, I believe, uh, Senator Nancy Skinner's bill from Berkeley, which gave what? For, for right of first refusal for tenants and put some limits on, I guess, uh, corporations buying foreclosed homes like en masse at once, right? So there was that. So there, that has been you know touched in, in, in a certain extent. And then the taxing issue, I mean, you know, there's like one tax proposed a year, right? That's like real. 
You know, I mean, like, I mean, it's hard. You need two thirds votes to get these taxes passed. And you don't really see that too often, despite California's reputation for being a high tax state. To a certain extent, that's certainly true. But you look at some of the legislature's record on this, and it's not like taxes that the lawmakers are passing every single year because they're they're hard to pass. And so I think that's certainly part of it as well. I totally agree with it. However, me and you have seen a lot of completely unrealistic proposals that lawmakers put out, especially at the beginning of session, involving tax increases. Yes, too. yes, 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 yes. This would seem to stand a more realistic chance even of passing than some of those. Also, by putting a piece of legislation like that out there, it stirs debate, mm-hmm. right? Gets people like you and me to write stories about sure, it, sure. that type of thing. So I've always wondered that. Okay, anything else? No, I mean, what, you're going to leave us with any words of wisdom? Get off Twitter. <laughs> I have something I want to say. So, you know, when you first approached me about this in the summer of 2017, I don't think, yes. I don't think we knew each other very well. I've sort of figured that as mid-30s bearded um, Jewish gentlemen who like basketball, <laughs> that we probably had enough in common. And I really appreciate the, your idea. I've had a, a lot of fun with you. I'm glad that we've become friends. And this is, you know, I'm really going to miss you. I know. I feel the same. This was almost always just a fun thing to do. It was fun to talk like this. I know we annoyed people sometimes with our bro talk. Right. Take a little bit of issue with the term bro talk, although I also think it's fair. I just, I enjoyed doing this. Yeah. And you were a great partner creatively and production wise. Like it it worked, you know, I'm sad. Yeah. I'm sad to be yeah. And let me also thank everybody who's listening. I think this, we said this a few times, but yes. it has succeeded beyond, I think, both of our uh, wildest uh, ideas of who will be listening. And we really appreciate the fact that you are and your support and your subscriptions and donations that have come as a result of this are really, really very kind. And so thank you for being supportive. And we're glad to have been able to have done this. Yeah. The audience has been absolutely fantastic for this. You guys are great. We're so glad that we actually are producing something of value for you guys. Yes. And it will continue. It will continue. And that's like something I'm very proud of. You know, we created this thing. It's going to actually outlive me, which is something I never would have anticipated three years ago because people like it and there's a value to it. Yep. I just want to echo what you said. Thank you for all the support, especially everyone who subscribed and donated and stay with the podcast. It will come back and hopefully sooner than later indefinite hiatus i think i might have said this at the top while well, well, yeah. match replacement is being hired and if you plan to try things out with a new host new co-host with me and see how they go please apply to this job if you think this should be you <laughs> so you can contact the folks at cal matters to share some share a part of your fortnight with me the job posting is on the cal matters website for those of you that are interested i'm also happy to answer any questions for maybe other reporters who listen to this podcast all right yeah. Okay. Okay. This is it, man. Yeah. I guess I guess we do the outro now. That sounds like what we have to do. We should also quickly thank um, the Irvine Foundation for uh, sponsoring the podcast, which allowed us to bring in uh, Victor Figueroa, who makes this so much easier than it used to be. Right. Thank you, Victor. Um, yeah. Thank you again, Victor. So, uh, again, my name is Liam Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And for the last time, your name is? Matt Levin. I feel like I shouldn't give out my Twitter handle because it would just undercut my <laughs> entire argument. But you can find me at M. Levin Reports. And also be sure to listen to Marketplace when you get the chance. 
thanks so much, everyone. And we'll be, uh, well, I'll be, I guess, uh, with you again sometime soon. Thanks, guys.